This group of radical women all decided to converge on the Atlantic City boardwalk to protest the beauty pageant. Bringing together traditional conservative activists that are organized really around this idea that movements like feminism are sort of posing a mortal threat to the integrity of the family. Out of this protest in 1968, the term bra burner was born. I'm Philip Martin, and this is Heat and Light. We bring you the stories you may not have heard about last century's most pivotal year, 1968. We have a pointing device called a mouse. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? Last time, we talked about the student protesters that rose up against the war. On this episode, we're going to talk about a protest movement that impacted the American ideal of family. In 1968, the idea of a traditional American family was still reminiscent of the show Leave it to Beaver, and that was in the 1950s. A husband as the breadwinner, a stay-at-home wife and mom, two kids, white picket fence. Girls are kind of lucky, don't they, Mom? Why do you say that? Well, they don't have to be smart. They don't have to get jobs or anything. All they got to do is get married. <laughs> but things were starting to change. More women were entering the workforce, and the manufacturing jobs that employed many men were starting to move overseas. For many Americans, this wasn't just a change in the structure of the typical family. It was a sign that essential American values were in danger. To help explain this shift in culture, we talked to Professor Natasha Zaretsky, who studies U.S. political culture and women's history at Southern Illinois University. Natasha, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, it's good to have you. 1968, as you know, was a big year uh, for what we now call the cultural wars. And th there's a particular moment uh, that demonstrates the changing values in our society. There was a feminist protest at the Miss America pageant in Atlantic City that year. Uh, it was unprecedented. Uh, tell us what, you know, what happened. Uh, how did this come about? So the origins of this protest really came from this group called the New York Radical Women. Many of them had been involved in the anti-war movement. A number of them had first become very political uh, by traveling to Mississippi to help register voters and became radicalized by those experiences. So these women, this group of radical women, all decided to converge on the Atlantic City boardwalk to protest the beauty pageant. Um, and I think it's arguably the 1968 Miss America pageant, where for the first time, women's liberation really enters the public sphere and begins to garner widespread media attention. Well, we just happen to have a clip uh, from that demonstration. Uh, okay. Why don't, why don't we listen to that now? Sure. So, so I guess, Natasha, that bit of theater at the right. Miss America pageant really uh, helped uh, illustrate the point. How effective was it? I think it was quite effective. 
so the, to understand why this was so smart tactically, it's important to recognize how major a media event the beauty pageants were. The Miss America pageant, five out of 10 years in the 1960s, it had the number one television ratings of the year. So watching the Miss America pageant was a huge uh, cultural phenomenon. It was something that drew millions and millions of people. M- more than so- the Super Bowl? I, I think five out of the 10 years during the 1960s, it ranked first in the ratings, in the television ratings. Um, and many of the protesters really recalled gathering around the televisions with their families to watch the Miss America pageant. I think Richard Nixon quipped that it was the only show he let his daughters watch on television. That, so that, watching, says, that says a lot, doesn't right, it? Right. So watching the pageant was a national ritual and it was a, a patriotic ritual. And so these women converged on the boardwalk, but they also um, had really, as you can probably tell from the clip, uh, really were interested in performance and theatrics. So they staged skits that called attention to women's labor in the home, women's um, undervalued labor as mothers. And most famously, I think the thing that people most associate this protest with is they made what was called a freedom trash can where they encouraged women to throw into the trash can um, all different kinds of what they called instruments of torture, uh, things, objects that in their view contributed to the objectification and the oppression of women. So Inst- things instruments, like- of, instruments of torture? <laughs> Instruments of torture. It's quite quite quite, <laughs> yeah. quite a, a a phrase to describe. I assume um, things that the that represented the family at that time. Um, yes. Yeah, so things like um, things like household goods, but also um, magazines like Cosmopolitan and Ladies Home Journal. Makeup, uh, things for hair care, and also famously bras. One of the reporters who was reporting on the Miss America pageant drew an analogy between this ritual and men who burnt their draft cards in protest against the Vietnam War. And that title of this this newspaper article was something like Bra, Bra Burners or Miss America. And it was through that headline that the term Bra Burner came about and became a sort of negative label for feminists, even though, in fact, no bras were actually ever burned at the Miss America pageant because, of course, they were on a wooden boardwalk and it constituted a fire hazard. Um, But what I think is so interesting about the pageant is that you can already sort of see these lines being drawn in the culture. And you can see how much challenging certain forms of gender oppression actually really kind of uh, could converge or come together with challenging patriotism and challenging nationalism. Because after all, this was the Miss America pageant. Watching it annually was a sort of national media event. It was. It was. I guess. I guess it was an event, if you will, the whole notion of bringing the country together, when the right. country was so divided over Vietnam. This was exactly. yet another way of doing that. But what was the wider effect um, of this movement? I remember as a as a as a child, uh, an African American family, we watched the Miss America pageant, though it had nothing to do with uh, with us in terms right. of reflecting um, our, our culture or sense of, uh, of being or anything. But uh, we were part of that, uh, that TV-watching audience, part of the Miss America constituency in many ways. 
But how did it affect, um, how was it perceived uh, along racial lines? And yeah. how did it affect traditional family values, so, so to speak? Yeah. Well, let me start with the racial lines, because this is extremely interesting. The Miss America pageant had a long and notorious history of racial exclusion. In fact, there was a rule on the books that only white contestants could participate in the pageant, and that rule was lifted. But by the time of the Miss America pageant in 1968, there had never been um, a woman of color contestant. And this was one of the things that the New York radical women protested most aggressively. In other words, they weren't just protesting the pageant for its gender biases and its objectification of women, but they also specifically called out the pageant for its racism. I mean, as to this second question, it's really not until the 1970s that you have the takeoff of a sort of family values politics. And that's a politics that's bringing together traditional conservative activists and Christian evangelicals who are becoming more and more involved in national politics. And they begin to forge alliances and develop grassroots campaigns that are organized really around this idea that the family is under threat and that movements like feminism, um, movements surrounding women's reproductive rights, gay and lesbian liberation, that all of these movements are sort of posing a mortal threat to the integrity of the family. I believe that more than ever before that there are evil forces that would want to tear down the very foundation, the family unit that holds America together. It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown, a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman, mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. It's more important than ever for our families to affirm an older and more lasting set of values. What happened in 1968 such that people began seeing the traditional family as under attack? Uh, it, it had to be more than simply this demonstration, I assume. Absolutely. So I think what is happening in the 19, really beginning in the 1960s and absolutely escalating in the 1970s is that there are certain structural changes that are underway um, in the family. And that for much of the earlier 20th century, there had always been an ideal of the kind of male breadwinner nuclear family, a family headed by um, a man, a husband and father who could support his wife and children, stay-at-home mom, two kids, white picket fence, the whole sort of leave it to beaver ideal. Well, whenever we cook inside, mom always says to cook it. But whenever we cook outside, you always do it. How come? Well, it's sort of traditional, I guess. Uh, you know, they say a woman's place is in the home, and uh, I suppose as long as she's in the home, she might as well be in the kitchen. Now, of course, this ideal never extended to millions and millions of people, um, working class people, um, people of color, you know, African-American families almost never had the luxury of um, conforming with that ideal. People who were marginalized in the labor market in all sorts of ways could never conform to that ideal. But nonetheless, this was a very powerful ideal throughout the 1940s and 1950s and even into the 1960s. And I think what starts to happen in the 1960s is that 
the economy starts to undergo structural changes and that the jobs that had once been there to provide a family wage, industrial jobs, jobs in steel, jobs in cars, those industries begin to contract. And by the late 1960s, you actually have more and more women entering the workforce. In fact, women are entering the workforce in greater and greater numbers after World War II. That actually starts and then really accelerates in the 1960s and the 1970s. So you have this change in the structure of the family. And by the late 1960s and early 1970s, you really begin to see this with rising divorce rates, with rising numbers of single parenting, and the sort of not dissolution of the nuclear family, but definitely this growing perception that the family form is changing and that it's up for grabs. So sort of a wholesale re rebellion. I, I think about World War II, you think about the women playing a major role in the workforce because men were overseas fighting right. or, or working in uh, some form of um, wartime development here in the, in, in the States. And so what happened after World War II? Uh, I assume many of these folks went right back into their homes. Uh, many of the women went back right back into their homes. But what, what brought them out again such that uh, they were became part of the workforce? So I think, you know, it depended on which kind of family. But I think, for example, in a lot of middle class families, white middle class families, you had women working part time, um, sometimes providing a supp supplement to the main income. You know, you have rising middle class aspirations among the white middle class and often it's a sort of second income that's providing for things like piano lessons or horseback riding lessons or all of those things that you are aspiring for for your children horseback to enter riding the lessons class. I, I, right we didn't I have mean, those <laughs> no we didn't either like I, this was not part of my thing but i mean it, it's sort of this idea that women mothers can work and take a side job um mm -hmm in order to sort of complement the, the main income. But what women weren't really expected to do or encouraged to do in the 1950s was, um, you know, have a career. But I think, you know, into the 1960s, you have um, more and more women entering the workforce. There's, there's often this assumption that um, feminism arises and is demanding that women have access to work. But in fact, feminism really emerges out of uh, the fact that women are working in greater numbers and they're encountering so much employment discrimination as the 1960s are going on. I mean, you still have classified advertisements, for example, that distinguish between male employment and female employment. Um, women can be fired for getting pregnant. Sexual harassment is rampant. Um, you know, the, the more and more women are entering the workplace, but the workplace remains very hostile to women workers. And I think feminism emerges emerges out of many different things, but one of the things that emerges out of is this breach between the fact that more and more women are working, but the workplace and law and policy haven't really caught up to that new reality. What role did the Vietnam War play in all of this, Natasha? Um, well, I think, you know, one of the things getting back to the Miss America pageant that's really, really interesting is they also called out the complicity of the pageant in the Vietnam War because, of course, whoever won Miss America was sent overseas to entertain the troops. And at one point, they even describe the, the beauty pageant winner as, a, I believe, a mascot of death, someone who's sort of sent overseas to entertain the troops and this sort of patriotic figure that's being used and manipulated to kind of gloss over the horrors of the war. Now get out your salt pills because this next guest wasn't designed for viewing in the tropics. 
This is the new Miss USA from North Carolina. Miss Diana Lynn Batts, right here. In case you've forgotten, that's a girl. You know, I think the Vietnam War was absolutely crucial here because, of course, it was the first major U.S. military defeat. It shattered all sorts of um, earlier norms about U.S. Cold War foreign policy. It created a crisis of masculinity as well because so many of the men who were sent overseas came back severely disabled and troubled and traumatized by the war. So I think gender, uh, the gender politics of the era and the Vietnam War were very closely related to each other. And so the backlash, first of all, I think you see a backlash uh, manifest in what uh, Nixon called the silent majority. I think that's fair to say. Right. How did this sense of grievance and betrayal, in what ways has this shaped um, American conservatism in the last 50 years? What we're seeing now, for example. Right. Yeah. So really beginning in the 1970s, you do have a sort of politics coalescing, new alliances being formed between um, sort of more traditional political conservatives on the one hand and increasingly mobilized evangelical Christians on the other. And I think it is motivated by a sense of betrayal, this sort of sense that in the wake of Uh, the civil rights revolution and the feminist revolutions of the era, uh, that somehow the state, the government, are somehow betraying sort of loyal, white, tax-paying Americans. This is the idea of the silent majority that I think is mobilized very effectively by Richard Nixon and arguably sort of is helping set the stage for the polarization of our own time, where you have this growing sense of grievance that somehow Um, you know, white working class Americans who pay taxes are being left behind. When I think also about the period that you're describing, Natasha, I think about two individuals who seem to exemplify uh, what was considered uh, the uh, the traditional family uh, Mm -hmm. and traditional family values, Anita Bryant in Florida Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Phyllis Schlafly. Right. Uh, Can you talk about those individuals and how they... um, exemplified this movement that you're talking about and their allegiances, if you will, to conservative uh, politicians. Yeah, so um, Anita Bryant was an activist based out of Florida who became very involved in rolling back um, gay rights ordinances. And Phyllis Schlafly, who was based outside, out of St. Louis, uh, Missouri, uh, became very, very involved in efforts to halt the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, which she actually succeeded in derailing. ERA won't give women anything which they haven't already got or have a way of getting. But on the other hand, it will take away from women some of the most important rights and benefits and exemptions we now have. The Equal Rights Amendment will positively make women subject to the draft and on an equal basis with men. Uh, nor could you Both of these women really grasped at a deep level the power of images of family peril, um, imperiled families, endangered families, that this could be very, very catalyzing politically, that this was something that could motivate people to fight at the grassroots level. To sort of sum up, an unintended uh, consequence, what you're saying, Natasha, 
of the, of the feminist movement exemplified by the Miss America protest of 1968 was that it galvanized conservatives and made them push back uh, hard against uh, uh, these, these progressive movements. Yeah, I think I would put it slightly differently. If you go, if, if we could sort of go in a time capsule and go back to the Miss America pageant and you look at these, these feminists and, you know, in contrast to certain feminist mobilizations of the 1960s, what the women at the Miss America pageant were trying to do was far more radical. What they were trying to do was saying, you know, if you really look at the objectification of women's bodies, if that's something you really look at and you look at the Miss America pageant um, and you take it seriously and you really ask what role is this playing in American culture, um, you can't just talk about um, gender. It, it implicates militarism, it implicates racism, that all of these things are interconnected, what we might today talk about in terms of um, intersectionality, right? That sexism and racism, militarism, hypernationalism, that the pageant was all of these things together. Imagine these women out there um, protesting in front of the pageant, and you imagine the counter protesters sort of building up a crowd around them and calling them lesbians or saying that they're communists, saying they're ugly, and that's why they don't like the pageant. You can sort of see the battle lines being drawn already that are going to become sharpened over the course of the 1970s as conservatives are cultivating this specific kind of family values, politics. So um, I think that's how I would describe it. So what about you? How did you arrive at this uh, this place academically? Uh, Tell us a little bit about your own background. Why did you choose to study political history, particularly the history of women and, and the family. So um, my, I come by my academic interests very, very honestly. Um, I was born in 1970s, so I'm actually a product of the 1970s. And my parents had been activists in the social movements of the 1960s. Um, and so I came of age in the 1970s in a very left Uh, wing milieu. I grew up around activists and I had really very positive associations with the activists in my community and um, who were very loving and nurturing to me. And then I sort of realized like, wow, there are a lot of people who are really angry at people like my parents who really see them as like scum. (laughs) You grew up up in a a left wing, if you will, um, uh, radical family, correct? Right. And, and yet you've come to engage uh, uh, at, at Southern Illinois University with uh, sure. a, a, quite a few conservatives. Yeah, I mean, I have come to, I feel very fortunate um, that um, academia forced me out of my um, sort of progressive bubble, being a San Francisco native, and took me to a place where I have had the honor of working with and teaching a lot of conservative 
uh, students, and I often see them puzzling through uh, questions about about all of this. So I have had, for example, a number of Christian evangelical uh, students who um, have grown up in churches being told that abortion is wrong, um, but are sort of uh, kind of constantly trying to puzzle through what that means in practical terms, how um, they can still sort of try to have egalitarian relationships, uh, gender egalitarian relationships in the, in the midst of that. You know, um, I also was struck, I mean, I, I sort of knew um, several years earlier that, that gay marriage was going to pass because a lot of my conservative students had a gay relative. <laughs> like they, you know, like Christian, who, students who had come from Christian evangelical families who had had a gay relative who had come out to them. And sort of, they didn't have much, they were not going to, they had no fight in them to fight against gay marriage when they knew someone in their family um, and loved someone in their family who was gay. The Miss America pageant is still happening. It happens every year. They recently, the, they had the, the very last uh, swimsuit competition. And I think that um, organizers of the pageant are at a place now where they're very much interested in highlighting its role as a scholarship program, as something that um, advances women professionally and almost like re-adapting the pageant and redefining it as almost a feminist um, kind of ritual and practice. Obviously, the Miss America pageant obviously today does not occupy the same role in the media landscape that it did back in the 1960s. Well, put it this way, it, t- it took 50 years uh, to, yeah. to get to this place. Natasha, I got to tell you, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Heat and Light. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast, or drop us a tweet at Heat Light Pod and catch our next episode about another frontier for American families, interracial relationships. Heat and Light is a production of The Conversation U.S. Learn more about us at heatlightpod.com or check the show notes. Our show is produced and engineered by Maria Muriel. Our associate producer is Jonathan Gang, and our executive producer is Maria Bolinska. Our theme music is by Kenny Kusiak. I'm Philip Martin. See you next time. If you like heat and light, you should check out The Ant Hill, a podcast from our colleagues over at The Conversation UK. Each episode digs into research relating to a different theme, like their recent episode on twins. Here's a clip from a child development researcher explaining whether or not twins are really that different from regular siblings. And you have to wonder, you know, are there really differences between twins and siblings, even though in our popular imagination, twins seem incredibly special. And if you talk to twins, their identity as a twin comes out loud and clear as being important. But perhaps when we are actually using psychological measurements, there's far more similarity with brothers and sisters than differences. That's the anthill.
available wherever you get your podcasts and at theconversation.com slash podcasts.